A criminal record can stand firmly between a potential new hire and a company that needs to fill an open job. But should it? In his new book, Untapped Talent, business strategist Jeff Korzenik makes a strong case for why smart companies will meet the coming global talent shortage with second chance hiring. And he lays out a roadmap for how to do it right, replacing well-meaning but overly simplistic solutions like ban the box with tried and tested strategies. He says these can give people who may have never had a first chance at success the tools and support they need to become some of the best workers that employers will find. Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. What a pleasure to be here. So what made you decide to write this book? I think frustration played a big role in it. I had collected this body of knowledge and experience and insight. I was speaking around the country uh, in uh, 2019. I did 141 flight segments, and yet it wasn't enough. And so I realized businesses needed a guide to how to do this right. And I also felt that it would help get me a seat at the table in some of these discussions about policy and about the appropriate uh, way to approach this from a business perspective. You do. You say very early on in the book that while there are moral reasons to consider second chance hiring, which is sometimes called fair chance hiring, you are focusing on the business reasons. So make your case. Why should employers try this? Uh, they should try this because this is a viable talent pool. 19 million Americans have a felony convictions. When you have a talent pool that big, you've got a lot of possibility of good employees. I'm not saying everyone, I'm not saying even necessarily the majority will be good employees, but there is a process, uh, techniques, uh, experience, that allows employers to uh, go into this talent pool and they're gonna to have to start seeking this out. Uh, we have a demographically driven labor shortage that has been exacerbated by the pandemic. And this is one of the most overlooked and largest opportunities to acquire talent. You talk about that in the book, you talk about this, this global talent shortage and I'm not sure everyone realizes that this is on the horizon. What, what's going to be happening to the labor market in the next I don't know, 10, 20 years? Well, in the United States, we actually had a demographic advantage known as the millennial generation. We had this mini baby boom. The millennials, though, are now largely all in the labor force. And we just stopped having enough children in this country. It's uh, This is true across the developed world. And so we have the this growing population that has a demand for goods and services, but we are running out of people who are of working age to provide those goods and services. If you look at, say, in the United States, our fertility rate, the fertility rate uh, uh, is the number of children a, women, a woman will have over her childbearing years. To replace your population in a developed country, you need 2.1 children. Mother, father, that's two, and then an allowance for infant and early mortality. In the United States, we're down to about, uh, below 1.8% or excuse me, 1.8 uh, children. So we're not even replacing our population. And immigration is a partial solution, but incomplete because this is true of almost all of the developed world and much of the emerging world as well. So we have this population of people who are incarcerated. We have people who are incarcerated and coming out of prison. And yet there's a mismatch, right? These people are not always getting the jobs or succeeding in the jobs that employers are trying to fill. So why, why is that? Why is it that it's so difficult 
for these people to get these jobs? It's uh, partially because of a social a societal stigma. Uh, when we hear felony, we tend to think the worst possible crime, uh, you know, knife murder, guns, um, and that's not reflective of the totality of the population with felonies. In fact, it's quite telling. You mentioned incarceration, but fewer than half of the 19 million people with felony convictions in the United States were convicted of a crime of such threat to public safety that they even had to serve a prison term. I had to spend a little time in a county jail or fine or probation, uh, community service, but not even a full prison term. So that's telling. Uh, the other factor is that many employers have tried this, but don't understand the accommodations that are needed, the gaps that exist in the life experience, the work experience of this population or of many in this population. And so they've had a bad experience. So you've got fear on one hand and, and a stigma. And then on the other hand, you actually do have some who've tried it, but had a bad experience because they didn't follow the right model. Where like the employee maybe didn't come to work on a day that they were expected. And there's a lot of things that could be happening behind the scenes, right? I think I was struck in the book when you were talking about the challenges that these people face before they even hit the stigma. We're talking about leaving jail maybe with no money, no transportation, without access to their birth certificate, a driver's license, basic things, a cell phone, things that you need to be able to get a job and then do that job. Right, there are huge obstacles to overcome. They kind of fall into what I call hard and soft categories. Soft categories are often, I mean, very, very real um, skills. You know, how do you negotiate um, uh, time off with a boss? What do you do if your if your car breaks down? All of those things that we take for granted, showing up on time, dressing appropriately. If you've never had a strong history of work and successful work in your family, how would you know? Most of us learned from a parent or for, from two parents or their friends and had great ro role models. That's not true for many in this, uh, in this population. And then you have those hard barriers. And some of those are practical barriers, as, as you pointed out. Uh, do you have transportation? Do you have housing? Do you have a cell phone? Do you have the uh, ID? And then there's another layer, and that's governmental imposed restrictions, what are broadly called collateral consequences. So these are the punishments that continue after you have paid your dues and served your sentence. Uh, it is believed that across states and cities and the federal level, there are 44,000 collateral consequences that create restrictions for people trying to get ahead. Can you give me a couple of examples of those kinds of restrictions? Uh, sure, uh, very often uh, you might not be permitted in public housing. So if you want to stay with a parent, housing is a big, challenge for people coming out of prison. You might be assigned to transitional housing for a period, uh, but that's really part of your uh, part of serving your uh, sentence. But then you're on your own. Where do you go? You might have a relative who's in public housing. You might be restricted from uh, from staying with that relative. So that would be one example. Uh, a very common example is professional licensing. In many states, if you have a felony conviction, uh, you might be barred from getting a barber's license. And uh, you know, again, if you're Sweeney Todd and, and murdered someone with scissors, that might be appropriate, but we have uh, overly burdensome uh, restrictions. Many industries uh, restrict people with felonies uh, in their past, uh, or and in some cases, even misdemeanors. So there are a whole array of these restrictions that uh, get in the way of people 
who want to rehabilitate themselves actually doing so. So I can see how we have employers would be looking at this and going, these people might not make great employees because of all of these problems. And you, you talk in your book about policy a little bit towards the end, but that's not the meat of your book. The meat of your book is how businesses can work with the system, hire these people and turn it into a great situation. So let's get to that. What is it that businesses should do? Talk about some of these strategies that you've seen work that you think that businesses should use. Sure. I'm going to back up a little bit and talk about why this works and what the business gets in return. The idea here is not to hire the employee of last resort, but to create a pathway to highly engaged and loyal employees. That's a recipe for productivity and profitability from the standpoint of the employer. This is a business proposition. But to do that, you have to identify who from this big pool is truly ready to turn their life around and be uh, and rebuild their life and be a good employee. And then you need a process for filling the gaps that they may have, um, whether it's uh, the basics of how to dress appropriately, how to show up on time, or whether it's uh, something a little bit more advanced like lack of exposure to technology and the need to, to become more educated. Uh, employers are used to this in theory, right? You can go to, um, oh, say a lesser school like Harvard and Harvard Business School and, and uh, look to recruit there and uh, identify who is a good fit for your company and then uh, find the gaps that they need to thrive. That's, but Harvard Business School graduates have been picked over. This is a population that has not been picked over. That's one of the reasons it works. You have diamonds in the rough here that you could not find very easily elsewhere. I think this, the reason this works in the end is a matter of human nature. I think all of us, your listeners, you, me, can think of a time that uh, in our own lives when we fell down and were less than we wanted to be. We, we did something that was below our standards for ourselves. People of character, and that includes many people in this population, want to prove to the world and prove to themselves that they are worth more than they, their worst mistake. And so this is where the dedication and what employers typically call, uh, referred to as grit, uh, comes from in this population. And as, uh, from an employer standpoint, and I've managed people throughout my career, um, it's very attractive to have people with grit. I would imagine, especially now, right? Especially when we're dealing with, you know, what's been happening in the world with COVID and the pandemic. Um, I, I saw grit come up a few times in the book, this idea that you're dealing with people who, if they can get through all of these obstacles, imagine what they could do for your company, right? I, you know, I'll give you a quick example. During the, the worst of the pandemic, I called the second chance employers that I, uh, that the CEOs that do this. And I said, okay, now you got massive unemployment. You got your pick of workers. Are you doing anything different? And uh, to a person, they all said, no, that our second chance employees are a critical part of our talent strategy. And some of them even observed that in the pandemic, they outshone their, their peers. Uh, Jeff Brown uh, runs uh, Brown Superstores in Philadelphia. He's got about a dozen uh, grocery stores, half of which incidentally are in food deserts. And so he's providing uh, great um, great uh, groceries, modern grocery stores in places where people believe they couldn't. Part of the secret to his success is 500 of his 2,500 employees are second chance hires. And he observed uh, in our conversation that uh, 
the pandemic was keeping some employees at home. They didn't want to come to work in, in, this, in his industry. He said his second chance employees are used to navigating risk in their life. And the pandemic was just another risk to navigate. In fact, one of the Philadelphia TV stations interviewed one of his employees and uh, this man kind of showed his uh, dedication. He said, look, if I don't cut you, of course I'm worried, but if I don't go to work, my community doesn't get food on the table. Uh, think of that level of engagement for a grocery store employee. It's fantastic. So you give lots of examples of companies in your book. When, when this works and it works really well, what does it look like? Sure. Uh, one of the challenges is there's no master national solution, but there is a model of success. And it involves two processes. Uh, process number one is that identifying who's ready to work. And typically that involves some kind of partnership, often with a nonprofit or a government agency, uh, working with uh, groups that get to know the individual before they apply to your company. And these become essentially your referral sources. So there are a lot of workforce development uh, agencies that work with people coming out of prison. Uh, they work with those people for months. They get to know them. They might offer transitional employment. They might offer uh, uh, temp, uh, uh, temp jobs. Um, and they become the filter for these employers. They, they can figure out who's truly ready and who's a good fit. So you build those pipelines. Sometimes it's even parole officers, by the way, uh, can, can uh, get to know the employer, certainly get to know their clients and can make referrals. The other uh, part also involves uh, partnerships. And this is filling those gaps that these individuals might need. So some of the best employers have some kind of intake form uh, often done by, uh, they might have a social worker, a psychologist on staff, uh, or a life coach. Or those are typical titles you see uh, at the workplace. And they will start uh, by asking you know, do you have stable housing? Uh, do you have transportation? Uh, do you have outstanding debts? That's a big one or fines uh, that might be related to, uh, to uh, whatever judicial penalty was, was meted out. And they help the employee solve those issues. Many good companies offer a whole array of services. This population needs, yes, those services, but they also often need a navigator someone in the company who knows how to direct employees. Uh, there's even a set of companies in Western Michigan that uh, it's up to about uh, 25 or 30 companies now that have created a separate nonprofit that they fund that essentially is a social service network for their employees and uh, direct services. And they, uh, they have some, an algorithm to determine what return on their investment they get. Um, and they found it's a better than 200 return percent return on the investment they make in funding this nonprofit. Oh, wow. It was, you made comparisons in the book to other benefits that employers are accustomed to providing, which I thought was interesting because an employer might look at something like having social workers and psychologists on staff, helping to pay for cars for people and say, this is prohibitive, this is too expensive, but they're already providing a lot of things for their existing employees, right? Right. I mean, those of us of a certain age remember when healthcare was not a standard benefit. And if you look uh, at the costs of benefits like healthcare and before it had a government mandate behind it, uh, you know, it's, it's an enormous cost employers were doing because it was needed to attract and retain uh, talent. Uh, we've seen major corporations move their headquarters to follow the talent. 
Um, I took a quick look just at the news headlines. McDonald's uh, moved its headquarters from a suburb of Chicago, about an hour west, into uh, a neighborhood that attracted young workers, uh, young professionals that they wanted to attract. Their new building cost them something like $250 million. So businesses make these accommodations and investments all the time. Uh, this is actually different in, uh, in, in the sense that in, when you're going after this population, you have so many government agencies and nonprofits that are there to help you bear the cost. So it's actually a very cost-effective type of accommodation in terms of talent acquisition. So I said earlier that this book, you get into policy a little bit, but it's not the focus. But I would like to mention the ban the box movement, just because I think for anyone who's not very familiar with this issue, it might be the only thing that they've heard. So can you tell me what is it and why do you say it doesn't go far enough? Um, it, it's not that it doesn't go far enough. It, it's that it's actually sometimes counterproductive. And I'm not an enemy of ban the box. It's become this polarizing policy, either you're for it or against it. Um, I'm for what, what works. Um, and the real problem is that so much of this comes down to the employer level and policy can help, but can't resolve it. I, I was on Capitol Hill last week and I spoke before one of the subcommittees of the House Financial Services and we talked about this. And you know, my point was, even if we had the best policy background in the world, it's still up to employers to make that decision. Do we go forward? And it has to be done in a way that works. Specific to ban the box. Ban the box uh, prohibits employers from asking upfront about a criminal record. The second chance employers that I work with typically do voluntarily ban the box. They, they, they do for various reasons, including hire, negligent hiring liability. You, you need to know uh, who you're bringing in. Um, and so uh, ban the box says that uh, you cannot ask about a criminal record until you've made an offer of employment contingent on a satisfactory background check. The problem is uh, with ban the box is that if you um, are determined not to hire people with criminal records, you find avoidance strategies. And uh, we did a quick uh, thumbnails uh, study. It looks like uh, ban the box states, uh, one proxy employers might use is, I don't wanna hire anyone with big gaps in their, in their employment history because it might mean they're incarcerated. Or uh, there is some uh, scholarship that suggests that employers are avoiding uh, neighborhoods, um, resumes from neighborhoods, um, that uh, that uh, might uh, suggest higher rates of criminal activity. So there's some evidence that ban the box actually hurts the job opportunities for people without a criminal record, but live in communities that have high rates of incarceration. And so it's uh, it's actually counterproductive. Overall, there is some evidence that seems to work in some places, government employment um, that works less uh, well in the private sector. But I think there's a bigger issue, and that is that you have to look over time. What my work has shown me is that employers who don't go about this right with an intentional practice of how you support these employees will not have a successful experience. So they might, because of ban the box, be more likely to give so much a shot but there's a high probability that giving someone a shot without the intentional focus on support won't end up with a very good experience. 
might work, might not work. The problem is um, in, in what I term uh, the undifferentiated model of employment for, for this uh, cohort, uh, if you have you know, half ter terrible employees, half great employees from this process, which is about how it works, um, well, you could say the average of, of good and bad is average. That's okay. It's not because as an employer, every employer knows that one bad employee undoes the good of multiple good employees. And so people who might have given it a whirl because of ban the box and show up as a success in the ban the box statistics over time may actually turn away from the practice. Uh, employers have to go about this with intention and with knowledge of how you recruit successfully from this talent pool. Well, and hopefully with the idea that this is going to be good for their company. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, one of the hallmarks of the successful second chance employers is that this is a profitable strategy. And if we want to scale this kind of employment as citizens to address this really deep societal need and tragedy, um, we better have profitability or you can't scale it. So it, it, there's nothing uh, wrong with that. I, just to go back to policy, you know, one of the challenges that I found with um, ban the box, and again, I'm not against it. it I just don't think it's, it's very practical, as, it's very effective. People who hear about ban the box and, and don't know, dig deeper, think, oh, problem solved. Oh, we, we enacted ban the box, problem solved. There are no quick policy solutions. And to the degree some of these policies are presented as, uh, oh, we fixed it, uh, or the media believes, oh, it's fixed, we're a ban the box state, we really uh, do harm to the actual people who, who need our help. And uh, this isn't to say there aren't good policies. There are good ones. There's uh, some that are increasingly being pursued. Uh, Michigan, for instance, uh, did one of the most comprehensive uh, clean slate initiatives, automatic expungement under certain conditions. Uh, employers are blind to, to the past and uh, people have to be a you know, there's, there's terms of, of how you get this automatic expungement, generally lower level crimes, time has passed without a, a new arrest or conviction. Um, these are really very effective policies. So there are good policies, but they tend to be a lot more subtle than just ban the box. So there are no easy silver bullet solutions right. here. Right. And, 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 you know, when I speak to business audiences, and that's my primary audience for this, um, I think they get that, you know, I don't say everyone's perfect. I don't say this is the, the, the pathway to golden employees. I say this is an investment in a talent pool that you can't afford to overlook, but like any investment, you're going to make mistakes. There's going to be trial and error. Um, and there are going to be not 100% perfect outcomes. And they all get that. And uh, I think being upfront about that makes it more likely that they will give this a whirl. You mentioned too in there that the business community is used to knowing that they have to work for something. If you offer them, hey, this is a quick fix, they're going to be skeptical. But if you say, hey, this is a great thing for you, but you're going to have to roll up your sleeves, they say, okay, I'll listen. Yeah, I, I, you know, I think one of the challenges here has been sort of mismatches between the um, advocates uh, for second chance hiring in some cases and uh, the actual employers, and they don't speak the same language. And one of the things that I'm hoping my book will do is, is help bridge that. And, and you've also seen some nonprofits that get this. There's a wonderful, wonderful nonprofit in uh, Nashville, Project Return, uh, that ended up hiring a, uh, a team to 
essentially sell their re-entry support and services to the business community. And they realized that they, as traditional social service nonprofit professionals, were great at what they did, but didn't seem to be know how to communicate with the business community. And this has now gone on. They have a social enterprise, which is a temp staffing agency where they are providing workers on a temp uh, basis to employers who are second chance uh, workers. They're providing all the wraparound services. The employers get a chance to get to know the employees. I, I, you know, I can't speak for them, but, but I would assume the goal is to get some permanent employment. That's a great fit. So, so a lot of people in the nonprofit community are, particularly the visionary uh, folks, are, are coming to understand business speaks a different language. Business uh, has to do this in a profitable way and, and not just for you know, uh, you know, businesses will write checks to charities, um, but but they have to hire people who can add value to their enterprise. I think probably the best best way for businesses to become interested in this is to see it work, see someone who did it, who profited from it, and and then be able to say, hey, I think that I could see myself doing this. You're watching what's happening with these companies. Is this catching on? Are you seeing more? It it's absolutely, the, the interest is absolutely catching on. Um, my fear is that this labor shortage we're going through right now will get employers to just give it a whirl. Well, okay, and they'll approach this like they're scraping the bottom of the barrel. Instead of approaching this cohort, this, this demographic as a true talent pool, what do we need to identify? How do we need to support? Right, that's a true talent strategy. Instead, I, I, I'm worried that employers will, okay, let's lower, you know, quote unquote, lower our standards. Um, it's not lowering standards. It's, it's tackling a different demographic. Uh, there is growing interest. I'm hoping that my work and the work of uh, allies like the Second Chance Business Coalition, the Society of Human Resource Management, the National Association of Manufacturers, all groups that are involved in promoting the good process of second chance hiring, the, the, the viable and long, long uh, uh, and the process that will work over the long term. I, I'm hoping we can redirect some of that interest into not just doing it, but doing it right. Well, that's where your book comes in because you say you're trying to fill that gap. The interest is there. The talent pool is there. What's missing is the instruction manual. Cor correct. And and there are a number of great online resources. Dave's Killer Bread Foundation has an online set of videos. Uh, Checker, a background check company, has an ebook. But I think, uh, and then SHRM, Society of Human Resource Management, the big trade association for HR professionals, has a wonderful certification course uh, that's very, very well done. Uh, but I like to think anyway that my book is not only the most comprehensive single source, but it is also the one that highlights businesses that show, so it shows that this is uh, actually not a theoretical model, but something that truly works. Well, we've gone through a lot of my questions. Is there anything else that you wanna add or that you think people should know? You know, I, I, I think uh, there's a lot of interest in this. People can be involved. A lot of people want to be involved, and there's not always easy ways to, to do it. What one of the challenges that second chance employers have is that they fear that there's a reputation back uh, backlash. People won't come to their place of business or buy goods and services because they'll fear that uh, either some kind of public safety fear, who am I dealing with, or more typically, they'll fear that it's an inferior product. Second chance somehow means second rate, and that is not, not true. So if, um, you know, if your listeners 
uh, know of a business that's given second chances, patronize them. You know, I steer people to, uh, uh, I have a bean coffee roasters, uh, which is almost wholly staffed by formerly incarcerated people. Uh, and they have a, a website, Dave's Killer Bread has bread in most par parts of the United States. They're a second chance employer. Uh, if we can change the culture around second chance hiring and the perceptions of uh, people who've made mistakes as somehow subhuman, if we can change that perspective, uh, that's something all of us can contribute. And it's uh, people in the arts have a role, arts as a business. I served on a board of an uh, arts venue that started uh, some second chance hiring on their, uh, on their, uh, uh, on their uh, team. Uh, that's been great. Uh, there's a play coming to Broadway. Uh, Clyde's is the name of the play. Uh, it's the, uh, the Pulitzer Prize uh, winner who wrote Sweat, uh, uh, for instance. Uh, this will be the first play um, on Broadway that focuses on re-entry. So we need cultural change. All of us kind of dictate culture. Uh, and so I think that there's a real opportunity for all of us to contribute. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Podcast is a monthly interview podcast produced by the Princeton Alumni Weekly. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. You can read transcripts of every episode on our website, paw.princeton.edu. Music for this podcast is licensed from Universal Production Music. <laughs>